0: Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's special episode, Gil talks to Kevin Maney, partner at Category Design Advisors and author of Play Bigger, you know, the book we all read when we're trying to create a category.
1: Well, happy Friday, everyone. My name is Gil Alush, and I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. This is Category Creation Podcast, and I have with me Kevin Maney, uh, the author of Play Bigger. Uh, but you know what, Kevin, maybe I'll let you introduce yourself properly.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Gil. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so I'm uh, you, Kevin Maney, Um I'm a longtime journalist and author in the technology space. One of those books I wrote was a book called "Play Bigger," which uh, I think is what's gotten us together. That, which actually came out five years ago, but um, turned into uh, a whole movement, a category design movement. Um, the book has been the most successful. I, I wrote nine books; that was the most successful one of all, and um, and has turned into uh, it has turned me into a, a startup advisor or a company advisor um, instead of uh, just an author and and. Uh, uh, and journalists, so that's it's been an interesting career turn because of that book, and uh yeah. So I'm here. I'm here talking to you from New York. That's where I live. Um, we're in base. Just had our. I I'm in a. I'm in a band that plays around a bunch of clubs in New York, and I'm I'm still recovering from a gig last night that got in it. I got home at like 30 in the morning. So, <laughs> So cheers to the you know the, the happy hours to try to catch back up.
1: Absolutely, still living it big. I like it. <laughs> Wait, what kind of gig did you did you do? First of all, I I, I reject the just a journalist. I think being a journalist and an author is, seems like such an interesting life. Um, start, but you know, start, I'm like I, I live in the Silicon Valley world for so long. It sometimes I I don't know, I don't know what's more exciting. I think being a journalist uh, seems very exciting. Uh, but tell me about your gig last night. I'm interested. What did you do?
0: Sure. Well, I um, we I, I've been in a band for five or six years called Total Total Blam Blam. And uh, uh, we, uh, we we play, um, you know, it's like a lot of music that sounds like it came out of the 70s or 80s, but it, but we write a lot of our own stuff. Um, and uh, we've had some decent success playing around New York City. And, and there's this great club. I live in Harlem in New York. There's this great music club, if you're ever up here, that people, tourists never find. It's called The Shrine. And it's the most funky, eclectic music club you'll like ever go to (laughs) and um and we've played there probably half dozen times it's a blast to play um and uh so yeah if you're any of your listeners are ever in new york and they want a really different experience look up this place called the shrine up in harlem and uh just go spend a couple hours and hang out and listen to some some who-knows-what-you're-going-to-find music.
1: <laughs> I love it. That's also cool. Uh, damn, next time I'm going to New York, I think I'm going to take you up on it. Uh, the 70s always seemed, you know, I was born in the 80s, and 70s always seemed like the, one of the best decades, from what I could tell, uh, just, like, fun and free. So uh, if you can bring some of that magic in that place in Harlem, I'm, I'm, I'm down.
0: All right, good deal.
1: <laughs> uh, very cool. I like the you're the in very, very colorful. Uh, well, wonderful. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, this is a special episode because you know, we talk about category creation, and you and your fellow authors pretty much uh, invented the term. Uh, you know, like, um, for most of us entrepreneurs uh, in Silicon Valley and outside, terms like uh, lean startup by A. Request or like product market fit, things like that have are kind of the old, not the, you know, not the old news, but they're kind of established, like they're a common practice. Every entrepreneur looks to do, uh, looks, to have, looks to have product market fit. And I think the newer, although it's five years, five years old, it's, I think, still relatively new. Uh, the play bigger um, methodology, the creation of categories, company design, category design, uh, category kings, a lot of the terms that you, uh, that, that you guys came up with I think are dominating a lot of our lives. Uh, I would even argue based on the guests that I've had here, that m- many, many entrepreneurs are, you know, heavily encouraged to create a category by either the investors or by the market. Uh, so this is a very, very interesting subject uh, for entrepreneurs. So maybe we'll start with an easy question. Uh, what prompted you uh, to, to write this book?
0: Oh, okay. Um... Well, uh, uh, let me, I'll tell some of the backstory. Um, And because it does go back to, you know, all those years of me being a journalist. And I used to be for a long time, a dozen years or so, I was the technology columnist for USA Today. And when I was doing that, one of the characters that I ran into was um, Al Ramadan. And that was back in the late nineties. And he had a company called Quaka Sports at the time. And Quaka was, Way ahead of the t- it's you know of, of its time in trying to um, bring sports to the internet, um, use uh, use data and other kinds of things that you didn't normally get on TV to kind of enhance the sports experience and all stuff. It, they had all of the right ideas, but we're like ten years too early because we were all still like using dial-up modems and you know it just didn't really work the way it was supposed to work at the time. And so um, I got to know Al because I wrote about Quoc- I thought Quack was again, like they had, I was always looking for who out there was doing stuff that like you, like you knew that was the right idea, even if it was too early. Like I was, I often love those stories. And, um, so, uh, I got to know Al through that and Quaka didn't make it through the com crash of the, of 2000. Um, and, uh, um, and, uh, uh and Al went on to work for, you know a bunch of other companies and be cmos and ceos and and anyway so years later um i get a a call from al and i'd been stayed in touch with him um and he said you know the last few years i've been working with these other two guys dave peterson and chris lockhead all these guys are the other names on the book um and they had a firm called play bigger that was doing some startup advisory work and all of them had been former company founders and chief marketing officer all this stuff right and uh um, and Al said, you know, I think in some of the ideas that we have, there could be a book, and, uh, and I said, oh, well, who knows, but let's get together. We had a dinner in San Francisco and just hashed it out. And the one thing that caught my, uh, my eye from that conversation, and again, being a journalist kind of knowing what was going on sort of in the milieu of the internet and technology and everything, was this idea that um, that uh, digital markets especially had become a winner-take-all thing um, that, you know, in a, in a digital market, everybody from all over the world can access whatever is the perceived best um, in that particular category. So they do. I mean, there's no limits. There's no like, you know, you have to drive across the town to get to something. There's, you know, everybody can get the best thing. Um, and so uh, the way the markets have started to evolve was that in almost any category you could name, it looked like 78% of the economics of that that category went to one company, you know, and there was some other company that got the, another 10 or 20% and then some other stragglers got the rest. So if, if that was the case, the thinking went, was that they, you know, that they were pre- presenting to me, was if that's the case, then why wouldn't any company want to try to be the one that creates and defines and owns a category over time? Because if you're not, if you're second place, you got nothing. Uh, so their whole, thesis of what they were advised companies on was, um, how, do you, how do you either take over a category and become its king, or um, more, probably more importantly, how do you um, identify and, uh, and, and then own a new category that you're going to create? And, and they, had a, they had a handful of ideas about how to do that, but they weren't kind of yet all sort of connected in a really disciplined sort of methodology. And then the work that we did together over the next, maybe, you know, whatever it was, year and a half, two years to do the book was really like flushing out all those ideas, connecting them, creating like a a really end-to-end discipline about how do you, if you're a company CEO or founder or entrepreneur whatever, how do you sit down and go, um, if we're gonna be a successful company, we need to identify and define and own a new category um, and how do you, you know, how do you do that from beginning to end um, from, from trying to identify what that is to putting the, the words and the definition around it so that you can own it over time to actually rolling it out and, and, uh, you know, doing what you have to do to, to grab that category and make it yours. Um, and so that's turned into the book, Play Bigger. And I think to your, what you mentioned about the book before, I think one of the reasons that it's been so um, Successful is that it's not just a bunch of theory; it's actually a playbook. Um, It it starts out explaining why this is important, but the rest of the book really is like how you know just how do you do this step by step. So um, you know that was uh, that was the genesis of the book was you know those guys making a call to me and saying let's have dinner and and hash it out. And, And by the way, it turned into I think it was literally the most fun single project I've ever done in my life because those three guys are fun and nutty and irreverent. And uh, we would, um, you know, we, uh, Chris Lockhead has this lovely house in Santa Cruz that became our book headquarters. And we would, you know, once a month, we would meet there for like a three-day sprint and um, and just uh, hammer out ideas in the book. And between, you know, riding out to watch the surfers on bikes and, uh, you know, popping open beers at five o'clock and and just um, having a, a really nice time so it was really a great experience and it, i think it shows you know shows in the way the book came out too
1: yeah i think it's uh, it's one of the things about the book is that it's a fun book to read uh you know it's not just how to or some of the other more you know like uh business books it's, it's yeah, yeah. a fun book and it comes out i definitely imagine you sitting sitting in that house smoking weed and drinking beers and writing writing episodes. so hopefully that was a lot of fun. <laughs> sounds like that was a lot of fun. you know you're you're talking about um, how it's um, you know how it's kind of a playbook and how you, you kind of recommend or it, it seems like you folks are recommending entrepreneurs to really think about it from very early on. Uh, I think one of the concepts in the in the in the book is company design. How do you design your company to, to, be, to, to be scalable for when that happens? Like, if you think you're going to be a category king, you're going to be a big company. How do you build it from the ground floor to be able to, to grow and scale? How do you define the culture versus just wing it, so on and so forth? Uh, you know, for many entrepreneurs, I think I, I can speak to a few at least that we kind of live in a parallel reality at any point of time. Uh, one reality is the let's not die reality. You know, <laughs> how do we have it tomorrow? You know, to make sure there's this runway to survive so that we can have another day at the game. And then there is the future. The reason we started this to begin with, uh, like the big vision, the big promise, the big, um, yeah, the big vision. And uh, it's, I, I know personally, th- I struggle with that, uh, especially in the earlier days, like really when you have like months of runway uh, and it's not, it's not unique for me, you know, like, I talk to many entrepreneurs, you know, many of us have taken loans just, you know, loans just to pay the next month's payroll. And how do you kind of, how do you balance that reality with uh, play bigger, create a category, you know, be the number one, otherwise why are you even doing this for?
0: Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Interesting question. Um, You know, one of the things I think in practice after, you know, five years now of actually doing this with companies, that there is such a thing as spending too much time on this too early. Um, Because uh, we've, we've, we have worked with a number of companies that were two guys in a garage and, um, or two women in a garage and whatever it ends up being. (laughs) And, uh, um, and it's, it's helpful. Like it's, it's help. I find for people that, that uh, companies that are that early, it's helpful to have the mindset. Like I would say, you know, I, I mean, not to be so promotional, but I'd say to anyone: read, read, play bigger. So you have the mindset of like, what is a category and how do you like start to get your head around that? But early companies at that early stage, um, the, 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 the funnel is still pretty wide about where they might end up going. Even if you have this vision of like what we're really doing, you know, as you, as you know so well, right? I mean, there's many twists and turns and you're gonna change a little bit about where you're going and you're gonna see something different. Um, and we've tended to find that it, um, like actually going through the category design process and really using it seems to work better if you're somewhere past series A, even series B. Um, companies that are two or three years old, and you've already kind of gotten on a track, um, and 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 now really see clearly where you could go, but you know you don't really have it nailed down, and you're not really sure if that's like a, a an open space or if you're going to be bumping into a whole crowded market or whatever. It's sort of at that time when you can sit down and really, really work through this category design process and and see the space that you're going to you know, try to go for. And, and I'd say the most successful projects that we've done have been companies that have been between like three and uh, 12 years old. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, I mean, but I wouldn't discourage anybody from thinking this way from the very beginning, or for that matter, way out, you know, when you're, you're, when you're, when you're a company with, Five different product lines and you're 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 you're, you want to think through a a new product line or something like that later much later in a company's lifetime
1: love that i think that's that's uh, that's so refreshing to hear uh that there is you know kind of like do do the do the work to set up the foundation and you know when you're ready two three years you know have that mindset so that everything that you do you don't forget about those concepts and and about the the real goal but spend the time to build the foundation and then when you get to some stability or you have you have a good foundation, then you can go in
0: and start. Planning I'll, tell, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the other aspect of that too, Gil, is that um, that really doing this well, whether whether you're working with somebody outside or like us, or whether you're just doing it internally and it just, but really doing it well, takes some time. Like it it takes the leadership teams time, and and really early on, as you just pointed out, right, the leadership team doesn't have time because you're like basically trying to like keep the lights on day in and day out. And, and, uh, and so it gets really hard to set aside like that real like, like deep dive thinking time at that stage. Um, and it gets a little easier once you, you know, once you have a little, a little breathing room, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I've had different guests here that have
1: different, had different point of view and all of them have read your, your book. Uh, some have went on it from day one Knowing that and understanding that they want to create a category, it was clear in their mind uh they they really invested in it, it seems like from day one, and I noticed that many times those companies are ones that kind of went after fundraise immediately they' like they knew they want to create a category, they also knew in order to do that they need they need money and they need a the breeding room, so they kind of went through that uh venture fund pathway and then some others um waited a little bit more you know they kind of tried to figure out what they're doing first wanted to see some signs that what they're what they were thinking is happening and then they went about it and I think one of them said um I forgot I forgot the the guest that I had here I think they mentioned it was about a year to kind of get it on the right path you know it mm-hmm. wasn't immediate they knew it's going to take a while uh and they they went on that path knowingly. And then I have some guests as well that knew they don't want to do it. You know, they're like, no, we don't, we don't want to create new categories. We're not creating a new category. There's a category that exists. We're just building a better, better product or a better version or better value. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's it's always interesting to hear the entire plethora of of opinions. Uh, What was your from you know, from the five years since you wrote, wrote the book and helped many companies do that? Can you share Kind of the most unique experience or incident you had with with a startup that you know that you won't never forget.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I don't want to tell any negative stories. That's not nice. I don't want to do that. <laughs> you can tell um, whatever
1: you want. You can tell it from whatever angle you'd like.
0: No, but uh, um, what I'll never forget. Um, I think that um, one of my one of my and, and there have been a lot there have been a lot of really really fun projects and and companies that were I'm so proud of of what they've done after you know we've whatever we've done with them um, I think one of the most fun ones and 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 interesting and bizarre ones in a, in funny ways was this company in Tel Aviv called Ripples. So um, and, and these so. The CEO of Ripple's got in touch with us, and um, they had uh, they they had started the company some I don't know what it was five or six years before. Um, I think it was started by a uh, one guy was a food chemist, and the other guy was an um, engineer that had come out of the printer industry, and they had created a machine that could um, could imprint essentially almost photographic quality images on the top of. Uh, the foam of a drink, like whether it's a, like a coffee cappuccino or say a whiskey sour or something like that, or, or a Guinness beer. Um, and and they, so they had these machines and, it, and they had Wi-Fi and they had some software and stuff in them. And so you could upload images to this thing. And, um, you know, and, and it was a bit of a novelty item, like a, a bar, some bar might have it and they would could do promotional things or, or maybe you brought one for a wedding and put the images of the bride and groom on it, things like that. But they they now suddenly now they had now they had a bunch of um, machines and bars scattered all around the, the mm-hmm. world and they had um, uh, and they were connected to the internet and they started to think like you know maybe there's a bigger opportunity here to not just be these novelty machines but to connect all these together and create some kind of a platform for actually being able to you know have a, a, a marketing campaigns or you know something that has to do with media. Um, which was a big leap, right, from making this like machine to like we're going to create this media platform. Um, but uh, that was the point in time they, they kind of had these you know ideas of how this what this could be, but they hadn't really been able to, to flush it out. Um, and so we went to went to Israel, w- worked with the leadership team over you know a week or so, and um, uh, and 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 it was they were a very playful bunch too, so this made it fun and. Uh, we ended up coming up with this category that we ended up labeling "bev top media," beverage top media, um, and and uh, and wrote this sort of narrative piece about like that 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 helped um, them kind of you know coalesce and understand what that really meant, what that was going to be, and what the you know the problem that it was going to solve. Um, and uh, they they wholeheartedly grabbed onto this. They made they they you know made videos about it. They went to the market with this. And uh, I think it's that was maybe three years ago or so, and now they, they've totally done it. They've they've turned this machine into um, a, a platform for marketing campaigns, and they've got a bunch of huge clients uh, like Diageo, which makes, you know has Guinness beer and all, that, and uh, um, and uh, they've done really well with it. And they've but they've all along they've been very. Um, really stuck to the category and really and gone after it. And uh and in fact they've been so successful with it that that um you know like Google is now like a generic term for search um that people when they refer to these kinds of like images and things like that they're actually now calling them ripples like it's just like become a small letter you know we're gonna get a ripples you know on this um, and uh and so that was an example of like a that but that goes back to the beginning of saying here was a company that um, was founded to do one thing. They, they, they did that and was successful at it, but then they realized that there was a bigger opportunity and a bigger category that they could leverage from where they were to this other place. Um, and that was the point at at which category design really, really helped them. Um, and then they were able to see this new category and then they were able to just like, they had the organization, they had the money, they had the, the platform to just kind of like go for it. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think that the, the most successful companies we've worked with have been that kind of story. Uh, but that was, that was one of my favorites and those guys have become, uh, yeah, I mean, they're still friends today. I mean, we just, we, they were just in New York recently. We had some drinks together and it's just a fun bunch. That's not so cool. Did you take them to the
1: shrine?
0: I'm sorry, what's that? Did you take them to the shrine? Did they, no, no, they, I did that. They were, they were not here long enough to take them to the shrine, but next time, I'll do that. Very cool.
1: Uh, that sounds like a, a great story, a success story. Can you share uh, cheers, by the way? We were, we're drinking asynchronically? Cheers.: um, Do you have a story that is more of a hashtag fail, where a company came to you for category creation, the team was not playful it ended up being like a sheet show and it was not a success story.
0: Well, and and I, 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 you know, I certainly not going to name anybody, but um, generally speaking, the ones that have not been success stories have been ones who um, uh, they did all this work on on the whole category and they, you know, they saw it, they started to go that way. And then the first time there was some pressure, um, whether from, Customers asking for something different, or uh, a little bit of pressure on the bottom line, or whatever. That they just they jettisoned it and went back to kind of old marketing tactics, mm-hmm. and we've seen that a handful of times. And um, and that's that's too bad. And and, that's, and sometimes it's actually just a result of even hiring a new CMO. Um, you know, the company's gone through this whole category process and and identify what they want to do, and then some new CMO comes in and says, you know, oh, I want to do things my way, and they change it all, and uh, and it just starts to go off track. So, I mean, the, the thing I would, you know, the advice I would give to anybody listening is that if you do this category design kind of process and and, and really believe in what you come up with, one of the most important things from that point is to stick to it. And, and not get off track just because you've got some, some momentary distractions.
1: Easier said than done, I can only imagine. Uh, but that's, that, sounds, that sounds very insightful. So, so to paraphrase, like the, the companies that don't, don't seem to be able to go over the hump and create a category are, are the ones that, you know, are the first signs of pressure, customer from the market, from the analysts, from the VC, from the board, what have you, they kind of go back to the comfort zone of whatever was already known.
0: Exactly. Right. Right. Right.
1: And yep. what advice do you have? Like, do you, first of all, let me ask you, I think I know the answer, but I'll ask you because I'm interested in to, to hear your opinion, the category creation project, the task, uh, do you think it
0: sits on the shoulders of the CMO or? Oh, or? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> it sits on the shoulders of the CEO. Um, and, uh, because this is not this is not a this is not a marketing or messaging or positioning exercise. This is a strategic like what kind of company are we going to be exercise? And uh, in fact, to go back to a point you made earlier, you brought up the concept of company design. And uh, and one of the things that um, that happens. So you think about um, uh, most companies really start with um, product design because both companies like start because somebody thinks of an idea of something to create, right, and, and they, they, you build that thing first. And then the next thing you do, so you have a product, you've, you, start, you start to build this thing, and then you start have to start thinking about what, what kind of company do I need to have to bring this thing to market? Um, and that includes, you know, what kind of culture or what kind of office are we gonna have? What kind of people are we gonna hire? So you start doing that. Um, and, and, and a lot of companies just stop there. And, and, um, but this whole idea of category creation is that there's one more step, which is to see the space that you want to inhabit and claim that space. And and um, and what I completely believe from what I've seen is that um, those three things all work together, because if you, um, if you've built a product and then you've built a company and then you, then you do like ripple, the ripple story, right? You see this new space, that you can go after, it actually changes uh, the kind of product that you're going to build. And that actually then changes the kind of company that you're going to have, because you might, like the Ripple story, for instance, you might need a completely different uh, kind of sales team in place to sell that versus selling, uh, to sell you know a marketing uh, campaign platform versus a machine. And um, and so those, those three things kind of go round and round as you change one, you change them all. And, and so if the CEO is not involved, all, it's only just gonna sit as a messaging thing. The products aren't gonna shift or anything. The company's not gonna change. You're just gonna be trying to sell a message that maybe the product or the company don't really fit. And, and that's a mistake. Very interesting.
1: Uh, changing gears. One of the concepts uh, in the book, if I recall, is the six, I think it's the 610 um, oh, yeah. yeah can you um, maybe can you tell briefly about that concept? Can you educate the the listeners a little bit about that and and maybe maybe we'll start there and then I have a follow
0: up question. Okay. Um, well, you know when we were doing the book, um, I brought up earlier. I brought up Al Ramadan, the Quaker guy, and and, and Al's whole background really is in data science. And um, so um, as we're doing the book, we were like saying like well 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 let's also try to do some data, you know. Research and see if there's like things we can find to, that would actually help uh, bolster this case or disprove it or whatever happens. So Al's just running like all sorts of queries on on data from venture venture-backed companies back to you know 2000 or so, and this um, pattern kind of emerged that um, that showed that um, if you looked at the value created. Um, after an IPO of, of technology comp- venture-backed technology companies over a period of 10 years uh, um, that we were looking at, um, that uh, an enormous amount of value gets created by companies that tend to go public between six and 10 years old. And, w- and what we're seeing was that companies that went public before they were six years old um, had a really mixed bag. in fact, it on average ended up um, uh, losing value, like you know going south of the IPO price. Um, and companies that went public after they were 10 years old, um, the average of them tended to flatline. And um, so we're curious about like what is, what does this mean? And we started like taking this to investment bankers and venture capitalists and asking a lot of questions. I came to realize that what was going on here is that um, new categories don't happen overnight. They they tend to take five six years to really um, to solidify and catch on and get to the point where there is clearly going to be a category here and a company that's going to win that category. Um, and so when companies went public earlier than six years, there was too much of a chance that um, the uh, either the category didn't really have the tr- traction that everybody thought it would, or the company—the category was right—but the company that you bet on um, was not going to end up being the one that that you know dominated that category. A really good example of that was—you uh, know—listeners could think back to when Groupon went public. Mm-hmm. It went public at three years old, and I can't remember what it was like six billion dollar valuation or something like that. And then it just completely went south. What, what happened was the category that everybody thought was going to be enormous actually just wasn't really there, um, and that category, whatever you want to call it today, I mean it just doesn't really exist. I mean it's kind of there, but it's just you know a small thing compared to what everybody thought was going to be. Um, companies that go public when they're over more than ten years old, the the problem there is not that the companies are bad, or that, that by that point in time there may they may be a very obvious category king over the long term. But by that point in time, the information is out there. Like basically everybody knows what this category is going to be, how big it's gonna be, which company is gonna dominate it. And so um, once it goes public, it's not as exciting an an investment. I mean, it's going to tick up slowly over time. But in that middle stage, that six to 10 years, what you're capturing then is the moment when um, people are starting to realize that this category is huge, And this is the company that's going to win it. And so that's when investors are excited because then the potential, you know, to, to get in early and, and ride this thing up is enormous. So that's why companies in that, in that slot of six to 10 years, tend to create all this value because they go public there. It's become obvious that the category is real and the company is really going to be that one that dominates it. So investors are like, I'm in, you know, and, and the stock takes off. Um, and, and, uh, so a couple of ob- observations that come out of that is that one is that if you're in the business of trying to create a dominated category, you have to understand that it takes time. That it, yeah, and, and you have to hammer at it over four or five, six years to make sure that you're the one that's going to win that category and make sure the category um, really is, exists and, and is as important as everybody thinks it's going to be. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but the other and the other point is that um, that uh, uh, if you um, you know that, that, that's I mean that that's that's the kind of the ideal window, and if you wait too long, uh, then the the IPO is not going to create the kind of excitement that um, that you know you might think. So that's you know it's a, it, it was an interesting observation that came out of the the research we
1: did. You actually answered that's so interesting. You answered my follow-up uh, question on on that six ten. The so too early, you know, three four years might be too early. You don't really know. You don't really solidify, and you may be making the wrong bet. An IPO may maybe on on the wrong category, or the wrong company. But ten years or or lo- longer might be it's kind of old news. Uh, so you you lose some of that momentum. Six to ten is is what you've seen. Is there any for 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 entrepreneurs who who know they want to create a category try to balance the setting a foundation with going all in um, have you seen like a, have you seen a, a pattern for for companies that get it right that understand you know they they don't they don't fall into the group on but they also don't fall into the okay yeah you're 12 years into it the category is already
0: established and it is kind of old news? Um, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, um, I, I mean, look, Facebook got it right. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they um, were right in that window and um, sales for, I mean, a lot of the ones that you you could name that have been the, some of the biggest, most successful companies, you know, actually did hit that window. Um, and, uh, um, and, and and you know, and I, I, get, I want to go back and just say, like, it doesn't mean that Every company that goes public at three or four years is going to tank. Sure, it just means that on on uh, you know on the average, when you look at all of the companies, there's there's enough of them that do tank because they are too early right. to offset the ones that are successful. So um, you know it's it's from an investor point of view, it's way more risky um, to take a bet on a potential category king. At three years old than it is at five or six years old when it becomes a little more uh, more obvious absolutely and we all we,
1: and understanding the pattern recognition of of uh, of of an investor is always very very significant and important for for an entrepreneur when you you know m- many times in here um, you know i'm a technical founder i i always think about the the tactics uh in category creation and uh I've interviewed here a bunch of folks who've done this right, and I've heard some very interesting tactics of creating category and influencing um the market you know one of the big one of the big components in category creation at least for b two b and saAS companies in our space are the analysts right like the, oh, yeah. the topo the gartners the Forrester, the Sears decisions of the world the i d c um, and I've heard some interesting tactics like uh um i think it was uh, yammer deanna from yammer and uh, and maybe also hootsuite she she was talking about kind of rounding up many of her customers it started kind of organic having her customers call up the analysts and saying we want to try this yammer thing but we're kind of afraid like what do you think about them and the more calls customers (laughs) called gardeners the more gardeners took them seriously. At first, it was like bashing and shaming them, like, you're not creating any category. And actually, they were telling customers not to go with it because it's like a security hazard. And the more phone calls, the more inquiries they got from customers, the more they took them seriously and actually went along with the category creation. Uh, Have you seen, you know, a tactic or two that you've seen as kind of hidden hidden gem that not many understand is possible to do that
0: you've seen successful? Well, actually, I love that story. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna borrow that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, a few, we have a few others. Maybe it'll inspire you to, to tell me some of your secrets. Another one of them mentioned changing the pricing, just tripling the pricing so that the prospects asked like, what the hell, why would I pay you 3X? I can just go to your alternative. And then he was like, well, let me tell you the difference. Between me and the rest, mm-hmm. and that was kind of a, a, getting that pause from, from the customer was advantageous. But I'm sure that from 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 your experience working with all of these different companies, there are some patterns that you've seen, it's like some tactics that are very actionable that, that founders can take. Do you are you comfortable
0: sharing uh, maybe one? Well, of them? I, I can help a little bit. So it's actually like I'm I'm in um, I do these the, the category design work with a partner named Mike Danfos. <laughs> And, and um, we're a good compliment because uh, like, he knows things I don't and I know things he doesn't. And, uh, and, and he's actually quite brilliant at helping with analysts. Um, and I, I leave that mostly to him. Um, but one of, the, one of the sort of meta takeaways that I would say is that, you know, as you know, I mean, the, the, what the Gartners in the, of the world are, are in the business of doing is actually creating a label and labeling categories. So that's important to them. And um, and so understanding that and knowing that um, they want to feel like they're the ones who are discovering it and thinking of it, um, and, and so if you as a company are able to uh, sort of you know jujitsu that whole thing so that 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 the uh, you can get the analysts to think that, you know, oh, wow, this is, I'm, I'm discovering this new category and I'm going to be the one that labels this. And it might, you know, um, this is to a little bit of a left turn is a, a lot of companies we talk to get stuck on like, we want to find that perfect three word, you know, acronym, like category name or something like that. And honestly, well, well, that's helpful because it puts a label on things for you internally. Um it, it's not the be all and end all. And, and if you um, go to the Gardeners of the World and you and, and you and you describe, you know, and they, they come to come around to your way of thinking that this is an important new category, and they want to call it something else, let them call it something else. Uh, the important thing is that they they recognize the category and they recognize you as the company that is, making this happen and is going and is the the leader in that category and probably will be um, and and let the category name go you know let the analysts decide what that's going to be if it if that's necessary um, but uh, but yeah I mean that's the, I mean the, the most brilliant tactic of all is getting the you know getting the analysts to uh, think that they are the ones that understood this and created this category and put you in it rather than the other way around um and it requires a little bit of um you know being humble uh which uh, is sometimes hard to do but you you know if you if you take that approach it's probably going to work better than going in and saying hey you know gartner we've created this category here's what it's called you should write about it they're not going to do it (laughs) right
1: right right absolutely no that's like the getting uh getting someone to do what you want by making them think that's their own idea that's that, yep. uh, that concept is always good what is your opinion about the the i don't know how you say it, the the part or the job of the analyst in category creation like do you think it's possible to create a category despite analysts not going with you
0: oh yeah 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 i mean um you know the uh be you know when you're in the tech in, in the tech industry um sometimes you could think that um the you know the analysts are, are more important than they i mean they're important but they're you think they're more important than they probably are um and, and if you if you kind of like you know zoom out and you realize that um that there are a lot of categories that are created just by um you know people starting to use it and, and word of mouth and and um you know the things that are happening on social media I, you know there's, there's lots of ways to get that out without having to convince it out you know i go back to the you know the ripple story i don't think that they've ever managed to get some analyst to say like there's a bev top media category um but they're but you know the clients the customers that they're after on un- come to understand what that is and what that means and why it's different and interesting so you know yeah well you know especially on b2b and and uh big enterprise sales you know come the the enterprise buyers want the comfort of knowing that gartner said this is right and you know that blah 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 but on the other hand the other way to create the other way to get the analysts and gartners to pay attention is to actually just do it and start to get some traction and then they have to like recognize that that's actually happening so i just i wouldn't I don't know, you know, thinking the analyst or the be all and end all of like how, you're whether you're going to be successful or not, is just, is just not the right answer.
1: Love that. Uh, I know we're going towards the end. I'm really enjoying the conversation. I'll try to sneak in a few more questions before we finish. First of all, cheers. Thanks again for, <laughs> yeah, it's a, for joining. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. We're still on our first uh, glass, you know. That's <laughs> why you got another one for <laughs> I know, I got another one. Uh, last was it two weeks ago Uh, i had here uh, an entrepreneur who said no one fucking creates categories he said no the categories are created already and the companies they just write the category and um, he was giving the example well he gave a few examples but i was giving the example of of um, gainsight i don't know if you're familiar with that company gainsight is like a it is the customer yeah, yeah, yeah. success. Okay, customer success. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Nick Mehta and um and um Anthony Canada, those two folks, the CMO and the CEO, they really pushed hard for making customer success a first class citizen. Um, you know, like you know, I remember Nick Meta was here talking about how he used to look at the Google Trends constantly to see like how many jobs in customer success are being created, and every time a VC told him like. You're not creating a category. There's nothing here. You know, it's customer support. He was like, you know, he would go back, take a breather, and then go and look back at the trend and how many more people are getting that job. What, what, what is your opinion? Do you agree with the notion that categories are created regardless of companies, or do you think that companies really are initiating some
0: of that, some of those categories? Huh. I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think I certainly. I mean, certainly companies. Are the ones who initiate a lot of categories, but you're really making me think. Like, I mean, I wonder how many categories just that are, are created essentially by users and consumers who just start doing something, and and then companies follow. I mean, I'd actually have to think about that. I, I don't I don't know the answer, um, but uh, you know, th- I, there's. Um, let me go back to. Um, uh, I'm not sure this completely answers the question, but it's something that um, i I found to be really um, I- important for entrepreneurs to understand. And this is not me. This goes back to um, this work we referenced in the book, but I, I've actually since then really gotten a lot more uh, dive deeper into the work of this c- economist named Paul Gorosky, um, G- G-E-R-O-S-K-I, if your listeners are interested. and um, uh, I mean, he died like in 2006, but you know, but he was um, he got he was an economist who did a lot of research about the um, uh, the categories and like how they emerge and how they behave over time, and he, and he ran the numbers on all these different categories and he created this very sort of elegant chart about that shows the category life cycle, and, uh, um, and, and there's a point to all of this. I guess and they. Uh, but if, you, but if you can imagine um, at, the, at day one of a category, um, so there's probably one company, maybe two companies in it because one or two people have had some idea um, that you know, there's this new thing to create. And the category is worth like nothing because nobody's ever heard of this and there's nobody's doing this or whatever. And, uh, and, and so as some time marches on um, from that day one, uh, a couple of things happen. One is that um, as soon, if that category is, if that thing is real, if it really should exist in the world, then as soon as word starts to get out, a lot of other companies are gonna jump in. And they and they may not be exactly doing exactly what you are, but they understand that that, that problem to be solved is real and there's a, there's a new way to do something and they're gonna try different solutions. But the whole bunch of companies jump into the space. So you, there's a spike in the number of companies in, in the space. But at the same time, um, users or potential customers are watching what's going on, and and maybe the early adopters are dabbling, but most people are sitting on the sidelines, watching as all these companies work out like what this category is and how it's gonna look and how it's gonna feel. Um, And and, and if you think for a moment of, uh, one obvious example of this is what happened in smartphones. And so you, you can think back the early days of the smartphones um, all these different kind of models and ideas came out you know Blackberry with his little keyboard and Nokia had the candy bar things and you know there's all sorts of different versions So you think of all that stuff happening and then there comes what what Garaske identified as there's this moment in time and he actually comes right out and says like I have no idea why it happens and in some cases it's 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 public opinion. In some cases, it's, it's a company does a brilliant job of doing, you know, of, of set, rolling this thing out. Who knows? Uh, but there comes this moment in time when he when he says the dom, uh, what he calls the dominant design gets chosen. The world decides that this version of what this category is is the right version. And to go to that smartphone example, that's the day Apple introduced the iPhone. Suddenly, everybody goes that is what a smartphone it should be. Uh, and, at, and once the dominant design gets chosen, uh, then you see the number of vendors in that category starts to sink rapidly, because either they're not on board with the dominant design, they get thrown out by other, um, or they get absorbed into the dominant, or you know, whatever, different things happen, but basically the number of competitors dies. At the same time, all those people sitting on the sidelines and watching, now they feel comfortable. Dominant design has been chosen. That thing is going to—that's what the way it works. That thing is going to be around for a while. I'm in. So the lines cross. Number of vendors dives. The value of that category rockets. Um, and and this is where the whole category king things come in, into play. Because if you're the dominant design, and imagine what happens: the number of vendors dives, the number of uh, the the value of the category and the economics of it takes off. So you're the one that's capturing almost all of that that spike, um, and uh, so the important thing for companies to understand out of that is that the important thing is not to be the one who's there at day one uh, and discovers and creates this category. The important thing is to become the dominant design. And you may be a late entry into it, you, or, or you may be the, the one that, that is there on day one. If you're the one on day one, that means that you're gonna spend years Making sure that you're the dominant design when that thing gets chosen, uh, but you. But it's also possible that there's a category that's been around for a while and has been had a lot of chaos. And you, uh, if you're, you know, good and lucky enough, you come in late like Apple did, and and wipe away all of that, all the others, and just and just create the dominant design out of the blue. So that muddies the picture a little bit about what category creation is all about because it's also not just about having the right idea, but it's about a lot of boots on the ground work um, to make sure that you get to that place where dominant design, you're it because that is literally the most important moment. Love it. Uh, Look, I have so many more questions,
1: but as I predicted, we are ending at exactly five, five o'clock at the hour. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. do you have any one last uh, piece of advice for entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs who are looking to create categories and um, and want to know the first step uh, in it outside of reading "Play Bigger"?
0: I, you know, I mean, just the one basic thing is that that um, lots of companies, lots of companies exist and and do okay, uh, not creating a brand new category. You know, they they ride some other category and they're you know they're a me too, and they they they. And they do they do fine. That's possible. But if you are an interpreter and you have the ambition of creating a company that has meaningful impact and is you know is relevant over the long term, um, and attracts the best talent and gets recognized in the media and, and, and creates the most value, if that's your ambition, then the one way to do that is to uh, identify a category that you can, Become the dominant design in and, and own over time, um, because it's been proven, in, you know, in, in category after category that that's the way to create the most important, impactful companies. Um, and so, you know, that's that's the decision you have to make as a founder um, if if you want to if that's what you want to go for, then that's the way you have to think.
1: Love it, Kevin. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed uh, having you here. You spent a lot of uh, great wise gems with us so again thank you have a thanks, wonderful thanks Friday. For, thanks for the bourbon <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you for the good tips about new york thank you and have a wonderful weekend
0: thanks again for joining us i hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again find all the b2b category creators episodes at metadata.io and if you have any feedback topics or would like to be a guest on the show please reach out